There's an old, ta old story about a tailor who uh, leaves his prayers and on the way out of the synagogue meets a rabbi. Well, and what have you been doing in the synagogue? Lev Ashram asks the rabbi. I was saying prayers, rabbi. Fine, and did you confess your sins? Yes, rabbi, I confessed my little sins. Your little sins? Yes, I confess that sometimes I cut my cloth on the short side, that I cheat on a yard of cloth by a couple of inches. You said that to God, Lev Ashram? Yes, rabbi, and more. I said, Lord, I cheat on pieces of cloth. You let little babies die, but I'm going to make you a deal. You forgive me my little sins, and I'll forgive you your big ones. A little brash, perhaps. Uh, most of us would never put it quite that way, but haven't we felt some of what the tailor feels? A few years ago, a young woman in our church came to me crying and angry at God. She had a little girl, a preschooler at the time, who had been recently diagnosed with a terrible disease. The doctors told her that when this little girl reached puberty, the hormones that would be released in her body would turn all those little spots on her skin into tumors, both outside and inside her body. And there was no cure for this disease. And she wanted to know, how can I worship a God who does that to my daughter? Good question. There was a time in my life when I went through a lot of emotional pain for about 18 months. I had terrible knots in my shoulders. I wasn't sleeping well. I was distracted from my work. My preaching deteriorated. I wasn't giving my teenage kids the attention they deserved. I was counseling with a Christian psychologist, seeing a doctor for my irregular heart rhythms, talking to some of the elders on my review team about it, reading my Bible regularly, taking my monthly days away to pray with the Lord, and nothing helped. And more aggravating was the fact that as I read the scripture, I kept finding passages that said, God delivers his people. The Psalms are full of this phrase. He delivers, he delivers, he delivers. Well, he wasn't delivering me. I was still in the pressure cooker. And I kept praying those promises, and God kept not delivering me, and I began to develop a, a resentment towards God. As a consequence of that, my faith began to shrivel. And I stopped asking God for some of the things that I would normally have gone to him in prayer about. Because I thought, well, he won't do the one thing I feel like I really need. Why should I ask him for anything else? I started thinking maybe God was not as actively involved in his world as I had once believed. Maybe he was more like the deists described. A God who just kind of wound up the world and set it spinning. Not really involved with what goes on here. It took quite a while and an excellent book for God to show me that I'd become angry. I was bitter at him for not helping me out in my time of need. There are couples in our church who desperately, despairingly want to have children, but cannot. And for those of us who had no trouble conceiving, it is inconceivable the amount of pain that that brings to a couple. And sure, they can have batteries of tests run and spend thousands of dollars to find out the exact biological cause of this problem, but in the end, isn't it God's doing? Couldn't he fix that one little thing to make the whole complicated process work perfectly? Why us? they cry. Our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Sudan and China and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan are suffering terrible persecution for their faith. 
Pastors are being arrested. Some, some have been shot in front of their own congregations. People have their hands cut off. Women and children are sold into slavery. Where is God in all that? Maybe the tailor was onto something. We've seen that in order to truly forgive, we have to assign blame to someone for the hurt that we feel. Sometimes we don't know who to blame, and sometimes we just don't want to know who to blame. Because I think in some of the situations that I've just described, um, we do know who we want to blame, but we don't think we should. We recoil at the notion of blaming God for these things. Our instinct is to rush to defend him against our own complaints. Some people take this to the extent that they become something like Christian thought police. So someone is, is struggling and wrestling with these hard, hard issues, and they say things to them like, well, you shouldn't feel that way. God is good all the time. You know? You're just seeing it wrong. God is really perfect. It'll all make sense in heaven. Well, maybe it will. But that's hardly the tone with which we want to come down on somebody who's wrestling and struggling with these hard questions. And in response to those attitudes, both from within and from out, from without, we've developed some emotional alternatives to hating God or even having to forgive him. One acceptable alternative is to wax philosophical. And we say things like, well, you know, we are just looking at the underside of the tapestry down here, and it's all full of knots and strings, but on the top side, God is weaving a beautiful design, and we'll see that and appreciate it when we get to heaven. And I'm sure there's truth in that. I mean, it sounds very spiritual, and there is some truth to that. But really, when it's your child who is suffering terrible pain or dying of some incurable disease, to be told that one day this suffering will all look beautiful doesn't help very much. Here's another alternative to blaming God. We sometimes try to escape responsibility for our actions by saying things like, well, it just didn't work out, or that's just the way things happened. So it seems natural to apply the same excuse to God. We don't blame him specifically. We adopt the passive voice and we say, well, life's like that, or maybe that's just the way it was supposed to be, or I guess it couldn't be the way I wanted. And when we say things like that, we are saying that God is not sovereign. We would rather have him be impotent than evil. And we don't understand how he cannot be evil if he allows some of these terrible things into our lives and the lives of other people. These hesitations that we feel to blame God for the, the wrongs that we suffer uh, are really based on very sound theological objections. God does not sin. Deuteronomy 32.4 is a favorite verse of mine, and it says it five different ways. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. That's pretty clear. My Bible software found over 50 verses that say God does not and cannot sin. So it doesn't make much sense to say we're going to forgive God if he never does anything wrong. Secondly, God doesn't owe us anything for what he has done or not done. Paul said in Romans 11:35, "Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God is the one who's given us life and health and everything that we own, everything we, we enjoy in this life. He's the one who gives. We owe him. He doesn't owe us. 
he hasn't uh, promised one thing and delivered another. He's never cheated us. He hasn't wronged us. He's not indebted to us. And even if he were indebted to us, <laughs> we're in no position to absolve him of guilt, <laughs> to forgive him. I mean, that, that's not our place. We're the creatures. He's the creator. So it seems like the whole notion of forgiving God is wrong. It's a poorly conceived concept out of touch with reality. And that's true at one level. But in another sense, it's an important step for us to take. Because even though technically and theologically the word forgive means something different when applied to God than it does to someone else, it still feels the same internally. It's the same emotional and spiritual process that we have to go through to forgive God as when we forgive someone who's hurt us. We're holding God accountable for what he's done, and then we're letting it go and acknowledging that he doesn't owe us a thing. But has God really done all those things? Is he really responsible for all the, the bad things that happen? Well, if he's sovereign, then he must be responsible. And he is sovereign. Let, let me give you just a sampling of the hundreds of Bible verses that say that God is in control. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. Whatever he pleases, he does. Second Chronicles 26, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Lamentations 3.37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? <laughs> we can make all our plans. Presidents can issue proclamations. If God doesn't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. Jeremiah 32:27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? So I think it's pretty clear that God is in absolute control of his universe. But one approach that we sometimes take to get God off the hook from all the terrible things that happen that sometimes seem to us like horrible mismanagement of the world is what we call the permissive will of God. We say, God didn't cause that. He didn't cause the Holocaust. He didn't cause that persecution of Christians in Sudan. He didn't cause the typhoon that killed thousands. He merely allowed those things. And I think there is a, a genuine, real, and, and meaningful distinction between the things that God causes and the things that he allows. And the distinction enables us to say, truly, that God is good. He is not the source of the evil in our world. He does allow it, but he's not the source of it. And I think that's an important distinction. But nonetheless, if he could have stopped it and didn't, then in some sense, he is still responsible for it. And we're not talking about skinned knees here. Some of you have had your young adult children taken from you by horrible accidents. Some of you have watched your children die long and painful deaths. Some of you have experienced stillborn children. You have yourselves suffered terrible, debilitating, chronic pain. You've been sexually abused by relatives. You have weathered the betrayal and divorce of a spouse. And the list goes on, and we don't know the half of it. The catalog of human suffering is long and heart-wrenching. Who's responsible for all that? Ultimately, ultimately, we have to say God is. And God readily accepts that responsibility. And in fact, he not only accepts the responsibility for allowing some of those things to happen, he claims responsibility for some of them. 
Exodus 4.11. The Lord said, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Deuteronomy 32.39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Isaiah 45, 7. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Lamentations 3:38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? So while we're busy trying to excuse God from the blame of all the terrible things in our world, he is actively claiming responsibility for causing some of those things. He is sovereign. He is in control, and he is, therefore, responsible. Now, when people come to grips with that, they typically have one or both of two common responses. One is to reject God. We'll just turn our back on him. Maybe we'll even conclude he doesn't exist. If God's going to hurt us that badly, then we don't really want anything to do with him. So we're going to reject him. We'll stop believing in him. <laughs> and in our foolishness, we somehow think that will hurt God back. He's hurt us, and we're going to hurt him back by not believing in him anymore. Well, as understandable as that response is, the problem with it is that we'll still have to go through the tough times of life. We will still suffer, but now we'll do it without the comfort and the hope and the encouragement and support that God can give us. It's almost as though, and I mean, it seems harsh to say this to people, but, but this, is, this is the fact. It, it's about like rejecting the law of gravity. You can go ahead and say, I don't believe in the law of gravity, but it's going to hurt you more than if you believed in it. And you can say, I don't believe in God, but you're still going to suffer the hard things of life like everybody else does, and furthermore, your rejection of him is going to cause you more pain than if you'd continue to trust him. A second typical response to feeling hurt by God is to rebel. Say, well, all right, if he's not going to cooperate with my plans, then I won't cooperate with him. I'm going to run the other direction. I'm going to break as many rules as I can think of. I'm going to sin boldly, extravagantly wildly, run the opposite direction, do everything he tells me not to do, and we just dare God to tell us that that's wrong when he's the one who needs to make amends for wronging us. That's how we feel in our heart. We're going to sin with a vengeance. And it's easy to see where that will get us. <laughs> Farther from God than we've ever been and hurting ourselves through our own willful sin. So what's, what's the right approach here? I think the only way to deal with this dilemma is to hold two seemingly contradictory truths in tension. One is that God's plan for our life includes suffering. It certainly did for Jesus. Uh, perhaps the worst thing that ever happened in the world was that men executed the Son of God. But the scriptures tell us this was not only allowed by the sovereign God, but was planned by him. Acts 2.23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you nailed him to the cross. Well, if God's plan for his only son could include all of the, the physical and emotional and spiritual suffering that Jesus went through, then why would we think we should be exempt? The Apostle Paul begged God three times to release him from the physical ailment that he described as a thorn in the flesh. 
And God said, no. No, my grace is sufficient for you. That's all you get. That's all you'll need. Ten of the original 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. Here's a catalog of, of some of the great saints of God, the people who pleased God through their faith in Hebrews 11, starting at verse 35. Listen to this description of these people. They were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of these people. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These, these were all commended for their faith. These are the people who pleased God. And you see what their lives were like. How in the world did we ever get the impression that if we just come to Jesus, make him Lord and Savior of our lives, then our lives will be charmed, protected, and delivered from all harm? We want to write the script of our life, but we'll never write in any suffering. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as long as it doesn't include any pain. We say, you're the Lord. You have control of my life as long as no evil befalls me. It's a hard reality, and we can rail against it, but it won't go away. God's will for us, God's will for us includes suffering. Much of it unjust, unfair, undeserved. But it's just as certain, and this is the other side that we have to hold on to, it is just as certain that God's plan for our life is an expression of, of his love. 1 John 4 says in two different places, God is love. This is the essence of his being. It is fundamental to his nature. God cannot be anything other than loving. So Psalm 145, 17 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all that he's made. In the face of, of the pain and the suffering that we go through in this life, it's sometimes very difficult to see the love of God expressed toward us. Uh, God's plans, God's ways are, are often beyond us. It's not just that we don't understand them, it's that we can't understand them. I was talking to a, a dad after the first service, has teenage daughters, and he said, there are things that, that, that my daughters don't understand about the way I parent them. And he said, it won't do any good to try to explain it to them, because they can't understand it. And they, they won't until they're older. And that's true for us. There are things about the way God does orders this world that we do not and cannot understand and won't until we get to heaven. C.S. Lewis was grappling with this problem, and, and his, uh, one of his insights was this. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves that problem is only insoluble as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. When we say God loves us, what do we expect from that? Do we expect all sweetness and light? Or do we think that somehow love might include some suffering in the plan for us? Uh, Romans 8.28 is a very familiar verse that has been an encouragement to many of us in times of trouble. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. It doesn't say that everything that happens to us is good. Some of the things that happen to us are just plain horrible. But it does say that in everything that happens, God is there working for our good. 
But then you have to ask the question, what is our good? And it isn't always going to be freedom from trials and hardships and pain. Sometimes it will include suffering for purposes that we cannot know. So in light of all this, how do we go about forgiving God? Well, I think three, three steps. The first would be to admit our anger, to go ahead and express that to him, tell him how we feel, blame him, if you like, for the wrongs that we've suffered because he's willing to take that responsibility and, and it's not going to uh, put God off if we tell him what he already knows about us. Um, when we don't express that anger, then it, it deteriorates our relationship with him. It, it makes things not good. We need to be straightforward and honest. So, Lord, here, here's how I feel. Where were you when all this was happening? What was, what, what was going on? Why didn't you stop that? Why did you allow it? And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, one of the answers to that question will be, I was right there with you. I was feeling the pain that you were feeling. I was hurting as you were hurting. Because the Bible tells us that in all our distress, he is distressed. A second step would be to humble ourselves before him. You know the story of Job, how God allowed Satan to test Job, uh, first by taking away his wealth and then his children and then eventually even his own health. And Job's friends concluded that these sorts of things only happen to people who are sinners. So Job, fess up, uh, you must have done something wrong. But Job said, no, I, I know that's not the case. I have not done anything to deserve all this calamity that has come into my life. Uh, so I, I'm not going uh, to go that way. He said, I, I won't confess. I will continue to believe in God and believe that God is, is just and righteous. But there's something horribly unfair about the way God is treating me. And, and Job expressed his frustration and his complaint to God about his unfairness and injustice. So now let me read you some excerpts from God's response to Job. Okay. This starts in chapter 38, and this is it goes on for several chapters, but this is just a, a couple of excerpts. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? <laughs> See, God can handle our anger. He's not threatened by that. We need to get it out. But after we've gotten our anger out, we need to repent. We need to humble ourselves before God. Here's Job's correct response. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say, speak no more. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. As hard as it is, especially when we are angry at God, as hard as it is, we need to come to this place where we humble ourselves before him, where we can hear the message of, of God's response to Job. And the message is basically this. There is a God. You are not him. We need to accept that. 
when we charge God with being unfair and unjust and unloving in the way he's treated us, or as the tailor said, the way you let little babies die, we speak what God calls here words without knowledge. We really don't know what we're talking about. And we need to repent in dust and ashes and take our place before him as his creatures, not his peers and not his judge. So we admit our anger, we humble ourselves before him, and third, we choose to trust him. God does not try to justify himself to Job. He doesn't explain why Job had to suffer so much. He simply puts him in his place and then says, in effect, trust me. He said, you don't have 1% of my abilities, my wisdom, my knowledge. I am great beyond your comprehension. You need to trust me rather than yourself and your own understanding. It's relatively easy for us to trust God when things are going well, and that's what Satan said to God about Job. Of course he trusts you. You've blessed him beyond measure. You know, why shouldn't he? But the message of the story is that faith means something when it's exercised in the dark. We have a choice before us, just like the choice that we have to forgive those who hurt us. We may not see much evidence of God's goodness at the moment, but it's essential that we act on the basis of what we know, what the Bible tells us is true, rather than on how we feel at the moment. So we choose to believe that God is good. We choose to humble ourselves before him. We choose to not charge him with wrongdoing. We choose to trust him. There's a, a song called Trust His Heart, and the, the uh, refrain, chorus, uh, I think says it well. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And I pray that God will give you the grace to trust his heart in whatever hardship you're going through.